God's people and to sing together, isn't it? There's just something about that as we sing not only to God, but also sing and encourage one another in these songs that uh, truly is uh, powerful and we can feel the Spirit at work among us. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Last week we finished First Thessalonians. We're going to jump right on in to the sequel together. We're going to look at Second Thessalonians. We're going to read chapter 1, verse 1 to 12 together. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. The Word of God says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on the day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we, we also pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Friends, the Holy Spirit, I think, desires to shake some cages this morning. Because in order for us to see the goodness of God in his word today, we'll have to get out of our own way. Because some of us have come to believe that God is all about us. That God is just up in heaven doing his darndest to make sure that you have a good day. And that you have peace. And that your life is just as good as it can be. And some of us have come to believe that God is transactional. And that, well, if I believe in him, he's going to give me happiness and riches and health. There was a prominent uh, so-called Christian preacher who had a book that you could probably find at some Christian bookstores that said, every day is a Friday. And his whole point was, hey, God came so that you could experience the joy of a Friday every single day. And, and friends, we, we need to shatter this, and it might sting a little bit, but we have to hear this, that God is not all about you. Sure, the, in Christ, 
in Christ, Romans 8 says, he is for you, but being for you and all about you are not the same thing. Parents, you understand this. You are for your kids, but you are not. All of your world is not all about your kids. You don't keep the creator's world turning, but rather God's central motivation, what drives God is not ultimately us, but his own glory. Let me show you this in Psalm 23. You all have probably seen this. You may even have this in, on, on a piece of wall art somewhere in your house, right? And Psalm 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This sounds like we're a pretty big deal, doesn't it? Look, look where he ends. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. His name's sake, not ours. This is all over the Bible, that all things that the Lord does, whether it's in the tiny parts of our life or in the big picture, are meant to resound to his glory, even if we don't see how it's going to do that just yet. And once we swallow that God is all about his own glory it will begin to help us make sense of some of the difficult topics that Paul addresses in 2 Thessalonians. In fact, just in this opening chapter, Paul wants to talk about suffering. He wants to talk about hell and eternal judgment. And he wants to talk about prayer. And he says that seeing that God is all about himself and his glory and that being a good thing is meant to transform how we view these things. Particularly, he wants to bring them all together and help us to make sense of suffering. He wants to help us in the process of making sense of suffering. And notice that the sequel of the letter begins much like the first letter. Look at verse 1. He says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This looks a lot like the opening to 1 Thessalonians. We see the Apostle Paul and his team. We've got Silvanus, which is just another name for a guy named Silas. And you see Timothy there, and they helped found this church. You can look at that in Acts chapter 17. And now they write a second letter to this church that was in sort of the cultural center of its day. This was like a New York or a D.C. of its day. And this letter is coming just months after the first to follow up on some issues that had happened since the first letter. You'll learn this if you haven't already, but people often need to hear things more than once, right? And, and we often need to have issues addressed from a variety of perspectives. So many of us want our problems to be fixed like, like, we, like we fix a hot pocket in the microwave, put it in, hit two minutes, and then boom, it's fixed, it's done. But friends, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> Your faith is not like a hot pocket. And if it was, remember, hot pockets, though they're hot on the outside, are lukewarm at best on the inside. I don't care how long you put them in there for. Those things get cold before you're done with them, right? The work of faith, the life of faith is slow and difficult work. And so Paul writes a second letter to them in love. 
and he begins to address all kinds of issues. And the primary problem that they had seen was there was somebody who had written a letter to this church impersonating the Apostle Paul, and it included some false teaching about the return of Jesus, and this had led everybody in the church to quit their job. Right, it's up and quick because they're like, well, Jesus is coming so soon. Let's just all up, quit our jobs, hunker down, because this letter claiming to come from Paul says so. And so you'll see as we read this letter, just these allusions to Paul wanting to confirm with them that this is truly him. In fact, look what he says at the end of the letter as he signs his name and makes it clear this is a genuine letter. 2 Thessalonians 3.17 says this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. He's like, guys, this is me, not not this false letter. Listen to this. Hear the way I speak. You know this is me. And so alongside all of this confusion within, the church in Thessalonica was also experiencing persecution and suffering from the world outside. And he turns after his introduction to address these believers to help them make sense of their suffering. And look what he says after his greeting. Look at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Let me say this. I would be a bit upset at first reading this as the first thing Paul says. Imagine me the Thessalonians going, Paul, don't you know what we're going through? Why are you starting out so positive and so thankful? You see the persecutions and afflictions we're enduring, and yet you're thankful? And Paul was thankful because he wanted them to see, here's our first point, that there was a purpose in suffering. Paul was thankful because he wanted them to see, and us by extension to see, that there was a purpose in suffering. Let's look at verse 3 to 4 again. Let's look at this. He says that their faith was growing abundantly more and more. Their love for one another was increasing. Paul was thankful, and it says he boasts about them among the other churches because of their steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and the affliction that you are enduring. And then he says this, verse 5. He says this in verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. The suffering that they were enduring and that we endure as believers is evidence that God is a righteous judge ruling over all things and that we are members of his kingdom. And he connects this and said that in the midst of your groaning, you're meant to grow. Then in the midst of your affliction is when you abound. Here's one of the things he wants us to see, that in suffering, God is preparing you. That in suffering, God is preparing you. And now this doesn't take away the reality of the suffering they endured, but it does give it immense purpose because... It is when you are suffering the deepest that God is sanctifying you to the fullest. That it's when your faith is challenged 
that your faith is perfected, that it's when loving the other people around you is the hardest that your love is strengthened. That endurance makes your faith stronger. And he says, this is evidence, the proof, the plain indication that God is righteous. He is allowing you to suffer in order to refine you. This sort of judgment is a chastening so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. So that he would prepare you to walk in holiness and to prepare you for the kingdom of God. This is a radical perspective on suffering. And one commentator said this, You're not suffering because you're bad people. You're suffering because you're kingdom people. Now, this is part of what it means to have the kingdom of God prepared for you, that you're not suffering because God is mad at you, but quite the opposite, because he loves you and has prepared a kingdom for you. Suffering, when it comes into your life, the world intends to pressure you, but God is trying to prepare you. God is showing you in whatever it is that this world is not all there is. And God is displaying how much better than the world is everything that he has to offer. But suffering is not simply preparing you. We see, second, that in suffering, God is confirming you. In suffering, God is confirming you. The idea here in verse 5, he talks about the righteous judgment of God. is this idea of God giving a verdict in a courtroom. And God's verdict to you, if you're a believer and you're suffering, is that you are his. God uses suffering to confirm that you are his child. You can read more about this if you want in Hebrews chapter 12, because one of the things that God does when when you have suffering in your life is he says, hey, I chasten those who I love. I allow you to go through this in order to teach you something. I am working in this. And have we ever thought that the reason that we often don't feel at home in this world is because we were made for another world? Maybe that's why we don't feel at home here. Persecution, the feeling of being uncomfortable and different from the rest of the world is actually a sign of God's fingerprints all over your life. And it is his verdict declared over your life. And yet, I feel that many of us think of this as foreign language. We are far too comfortable in the world that we live in. Because some of us, we want to blame Satan for everything that goes wrong in our life. But let me say, Satan doesn't have to pressure you or persecute you. Some of us, he can just leave us alone. And we'll just walk in our own way. Sometimes we blame Satan for things that really are faults. Right? We love to do that, don't we? We're told here that one of the evidences that we are Christians, one of the signs that we belong to God is that we will be persecuted by the world. That followers of a rejected and crucified Messiah shouldn't embrace, shouldn't expect a warm embrace from the world. Look what the Apostle Peter says. He puts this this way. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, don't be surprised by this, but rejoice in as far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's here's his point. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory is and of God rests upon you. You see that last verse? 
It's an if-then statement. If you are insulted. And let me say this. So many of us think about persecution and we think about somebody trying to take our life. But if you read 1 Peter, the persecution they were enduring was verbal, being called names, being outcasted, being pushed to the lowest part of society. And he says, if you experience this, you're blessed. Why? Because it means the spirit of Jesus who experienced the same trials and tribulations rests on you. Look what Jesus says over in John chapter 15. Jesus says this, I'm the true vine. My father is the true vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Friends, what is God's purpose in your suffering? He is preparing you for a kingdom, and he is confirming you in that promise. He is pruning you so that you might produce fruit for his glory. He's trying to keep us uncomfortable to show us where our hope lies. And he says, continue to endure and be steadfast in the faith. He is pruning you for his promised glorious kingdom. But the Holy Spirit isn't done. He moves from God's purpose in suffering to our hope for the suffering. Hope for the suffering. Look at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. There's a lot there, isn't there? But here's the hope. Here's the point. Jesus will come again to repay and relieve. That's the hope for the suffering. He goes back again to where he was in his first letter, right? That Jesus will come again to repay and to relieve. The Holy Spirit wants us to see that the hope for the suffering is that there is a God who sees and a God who will judge. You who have been wronged in whatever way it is, you may not get justice in this life, but you will get justice, (laughs) You may not get closure in this life, but eternity will provide infinite closure because the righteous judge will come and he will judge. And we're told he will punish. He said, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted us and to grant relief to all who have been persecuted. God is not absent, but God is patient. We're told he's abounding in patience, steadfast love, grace, and that he desires all men to be saved, but even God runs out of patience one day. And that all of us have a day with the high courts of the universe, and the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And it's incredible how when we think about suffering, our minds often jump to heaven being a comfort, and it is. 
it's not a bad thing, but the Apostle Paul here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit offers unusual comfort to us with the reality of hell. He says, when will justice be done? When will we find relief? Look at verse 7. Look at this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. Flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, eternal destruction, away from the kind presence of God and the glory of his might. These are horrifying words, and yet they're also meant to be comforting words. Because in God's world, earthly justice will get it wrong, but eternal justice always gets it right. Let me tell you something. In God's courtroom, there has never been an unsolved murder. Isn't that good news that in the world, there's oftentimes we will never get answers to things that have happened to us. But in God's world, in in eternity, in his kingdom, justice is never not done. And this is also a reminder to us that hell is real and that it is terrifying. And that I would plead with you, it says it awaits all who do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel. That those who remain indifferent to the crucified and resurrected Jesus and have not turned from their sin and their pride to trust in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, this is what awaits them. And that God is just. And that means our sins can be paid for in one of two ways. It will either be paid for with you standing in the place trying to pay an eternal debt that you can never pay, or... It can be paid for in Jesus as your substitute. That he came and lived a sinless life that you and I could never live and that he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he paid the debt that our sins deserve. He bore the wrath of God due sinners. He drank the the punishment of God dry. And he rose again to rescue and to offer hope and to declare that he is both the just judge and the justifier of sinners. So if you hear this and you are horrified at the idea, turn to Jesus. As we sang, surrender all to him and he will meet you. Whatever you've done, wherever you are, he desires for you to know him and to have confidence in your eternity. And you can do that right where you are, calling out to him or talking to one of us. But as we think about the doctrine of hell, it should lead us toward compassionate evangelism. It should lead us to speak to our neighbors, because this is true of folks that live in Cades right now. We often want to think, because they live in a small town, only the people in the big city go to hell. Well, no. No, friends. This is something that your neighbors and friends and coworkers, they need to hear that Jesus saves, but he also says there should be a humble comfort. God will do what is just. Though we are wronged, the courtroom of heaven will get it right. And for those who are in Christ, incredible glory awaits. Look what he tacks on to the end. Look at verse 9. Look at this. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
when he comes that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. When he comes, he will judge. But yes, he will also be glorified. It says he will be marveled at. We will see things that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor could I fully articulate to you the beauty of Jesus. He said we will be captured and marvel at his radiance and glory. And oh, what a comfort to you. Your suffering is not forever. You will spend forever with your Savior and your Lord, and he will be enough. Friends, you're not going to have the stress of bills Friends, you're not going to have the political pressures of our day. COVID's going to be no more. Friends, and it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter which donkey or elephant is in the White House. Because Jesus is going to be on the white throne. And he will be enough forever. And all how that changes our often man-centered approach to our suffering. And oh, how it changes when we see and understand this because when we begin to capture the incredible truth that God is for God, it changes everything. Because it shows us that the greatest thing in the universe is to see and marvel at the glory of God. That's why God does everything, and so that must be the greatest thing in the universe. So the fact that we get to marvel at and be a part of that, it changes everything. Some of us find it so hard to believe that Jesus for all eternity will be enough for us. And maybe it's because we haven't fully come to know the riches and glory and goodness of Jesus, but he tells us if he's going to be enough for you forever, he's enough for you now. He says the purpose of suffering, God is growing us in our groaning, preparing us, confirming us, that the hope of the suffering is that Jesus will come again to repay and to relieve, and he closes with a prayer for the suffering. With a prayer for the suffering. And look with me at verse 11. Look at verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, with this future in view, we pray that God will enable you to live worthy in the present that he will make us worthy and fulfill every good resolve in us and every work of faith so that the name of Jesus might be glorified. And notice a theme right in the midst of this that we've been seeing over the last several weeks, that he will fulfill this resolve in us and make us do every good work of faith by his power. As we prayed together last week, God will only be able to do this when we, when we surrender to him and lean on his power. And it isn't wrong for us to pray for relief from your suffering. But notice, that isn't what Paul prays for. He doesn't pray that suffering would go away from them. Again, that's not wrong to do, but Paul prays for power for them to do what God has called them to do and to continue abounding in all the things he was thankful for. In the midst of suffering, do you ask God to change your calling? Or do you pray... For him to make you worthy of your calling. 
Do we focus on resolution or on our resolve? Is our perspective that really the best thing in life is that we have comforts, the house on the hill, the 401k, the the everything that we need to live a comfortable life in America? Or is our perspective that whatever comes, we long for Jesus to receive glory through our life? And it's toward that end that Jesus is marveled at and gloried in that he prays. And we need to see that in order to make sense of our suffering, we need to make sense of how great God is. That once we understand that the greatest reality in the universe is Jesus and his glory, that changes everything. Because it's not going to instantly make you feel better and take away all your suffering today, but it will put it in perspective. Because when we understand how great Jesus and his glory are, it begins to show us how small we are. We are not the purpose of the universe. The movie of the world, the, you don't have the starring role in the movie of the world. You, don't even, you might get a little spot in the credits at the end, maybe, maybe, <laughs> right? But the star, when it says starring, friends, it is starring God and his work in the world. And when we realize how small we are, we begin to see how small some of our struggles and sufferings and persecutions really are. Friends, God is bigger. His purpose is grander. His judgment will be better. His glory is sweeter. In his presence is fullness of joy and everlasting life. The judge of all the earth will do what is right, giving affliction to those who have afflicted and comfort to those who have been crushed. And that's why we don't pursue revenge, but we leave it to the wrath of God. And we pray and resolve to live worthy of the glorious kingdom. He has promised that we would inherit it. We would inherit. And he has asked us to consider this. What is consuming you? Is it your problems of your life for the glory of your Savior? What has your resolve? Is it worldly comforts or eternal glory? May we be captured by the incomprehensible beauty of the glory of of God. Let us pray together. God, it is good that we are not the center of the universe. (laughs) I am so thankful that none of us in this room are because we would screw it up if we were the king and the center of the universe. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be marvel even now at your glory, even as we will marvel in ways we can never understand when you return. Lord, I pray that whatever wrong has been done to us, that we would give it over to you and trust that you will do what is right. We don't need to seek revenge or harbor bitterness because the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And maybe look forward to the day when you do grant relief to to those who have been afflicted, that in Christ you will have us with everything that our hearts and what everything that we've been created to want and desire will be with our Creator and our Savior and our Lord forever. So we pray along with the Apostle Paul to give us resolve in the meantime to live for you, for every good work, for everything that you've called us to do and help us to see 
that eternity hangs in the balance with our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, maybe people in our family. And Lord, give us the boldness and the opportunity to step forward in faith and to speak the life-changing words of the gospel to them. I ask that you would receive honor as we give you all of our attention in this time. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with a heart of surrender. Stand up, please. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him. His presence daily there. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. surrender. benediction. If, if you're visiting with us or maybe been with us a little bit and want to connect, we've got some connect cards out on the welcome desk. Fill those out. Uh, leave those with us. We'd love to follow up with you and we'd love for you to join us again for our Discover class and our men's night. We've got stuff to sign up for out uh, in the lobby that I encourage you to sign up for. And I'd also thank you uh, for your giving. You'll be getting uh, an, an update here in the next month or so. But the Lord has been so good to us in the midst of uh, unprecedented times in our church. So thank you for your giving. There's baskets on the way out as well as online and text to give stuff. You'll see there on the screen. But I'll have us close with a benediction, a blessing from God's word to send us out into the world and to whatever this week has to bring, knowing that God is with us. He's for us, even though he's not all about us, and that his glory is the driving force for everything. And he says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.